Well, hey, everybody, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, I wanted to uh, take a look and do a little bit of integral analysis on a new political figure who has hit the American political culture hard and fast. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, 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 Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the 39-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which is a Rust Belt city of about 100,000 people in Indiana. So, you know, right there, we can pause and realize that this is quite a stretch for a guy like this to be running for the president of the United States. And I must say, when I heard about him, probably two or three months ago, he really just came on the scene three months ago. Uh, and, you know, I heard of him as one of these, you know, weirdo candidates that it's generally some form of a branding exercise that these people do to raise their profile and their Q ratings, which is the rating for how appealing they are. And, um, and I think it may have been, actually. But uh, as we can see from the current occupant of the White House, these branding exercises can go wildly awry. And you never know, you can get Donald Trump as president. So anyway, I, I, I do want to show you graphically, for those of you who are watching in video, and I'll describe it for those of you who aren't, uh, a moving infographic from Google. And this is about the uh, democratic field in general, a ranking of search interest from Google. And it starts at the beginning of the year here and goes to April 1st. And you can see we have the top four tier candidates. It's starting at the beginning of the year. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris. And, and then we have way down at the bottom, tw 21st in this ranking, Pete Buttigieg. And so here he is at 22nd, and there's the top four. So you can see what happens here in the last three months. They're all hanging in there up there at fourth, one, two, three, four. And, but Pete all of a sudden is number two after Biden. So now it's Biden, Buttigieg, Sanders, Harris, and Warren in that order. That's pretty impressive. And he is third in a poll in Iowa after Biden and Bernie. And he raised $7 million and he's impressing everybody. He's been on all these shows and this really uh, started um, about a month ago, when he was on a CNN town hall meeting that a lot of people found very impressive, including me. And also on Morning Joe, he visited the ladies of The View. He was on Bill Maher. And most notably, he went on Fox News and was on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. And, you know, everybody I know is very, very not just interested in him, but enthusiastic about him. And a couple of my friends who are big on social media assure me that he is the favorite of the integral community on social media as of this moment. So we'll see. You know, he does have quite a impressive resume for sure. He did his, uh, of course, campaign biography called The Shortest Way Home. And I'll show you that. 
And he tells his story as they do in campaign bios. He was the only son of college professors at Notre Dame, only child, went to Harvard, became a Rhodes Scholar and worked for McKinsey, which is the leading consulting firm in the world doing data analytics. And he left that to run for mayor of his hometown of of South Bend, Indiana, at the age of 29. And during his first term, he joined the Navy Reserves and did a stint in Afghanistan, an eight-month stint in Afghanistan in military intelligence. And he was in the thick of things. I I read the bio, and it's... um, it's really interesting. He's also a concert pianist, and, <laughs> and he's gay. He came out during his second campaign after Afghanistan and, um, and won by 80% of the vote. So it's, uh, I think we're, we're there in terms of accepting that. So in, in terms of his rise, you know, it's just always interesting to see when cultural eruptions happen. It's just part of you know, as a as an evolutionary, it's 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 interesting to just see what is emerging. I think in Pete's case, my theory is that he's an integral thinker, and he literally transmits integral consciousness, and that is really appealing to people. And I'm going to explore that a little bit here, and uh, we'll see how we do. First of all, I'd say that integral is not a super rarefied designation. Uh, People who think about this and who have done measurements uh, think that there is about five to 6% of the population, maybe a little more, maybe a little less in the developed world that is, you know, has a center of gravity of at least integral cognition. And that term itself reveals something that happens as we evolve into integral consciousness, and that that movement into integral happens itself in stages. And I sometimes think of it as being integral in the head, in the heart, and in the gut. In the head, we would say that somebody has integral cognition, and that's really generally the first move into integral consciousness, where we begin to see multi-perspectively we can see the systems of systems that make up the world and that that make up the movements of history. And we can see how they shake down and what's in common and and see bigger and bigger patterns. It's, it's, um, you know, it's like the Google map. You not only see more detail, but you see the bigger patterns as well. So that's the head part, that's integral cognition. And then there's the heart. And that's what's triggered. Once you get that headpiece online, you just realize, oh, okay, I see. There's this evolution of consciousness. There's this evolution of culture. And, you know, we're moving in a direction. We've come from somewhere. And this realization, this head realization, triggers in your heart a forgiveness for all of the crimes of history. And you don't want to perpetuate them anymore with any more right fighting for the left or the right or for pro this or anti that. Uh, And all of that becomes, you just see that it's that part of it, that right fighting is not helpful and is in fact boring. 
And that's even worse than unhelpful. <laughs> so, you know, at that stage, we just want to get together with other people. Uh, you know, we want to bring a good heart to that. We want to see their good heart as best we can. You know, I, I, I always love um, the teachings of Chukam Trumpa at, at, in my Buddhist training about just basic goodness. See the basic goodness in other people. And appeal to that, appeal to their better angels, and just work out our problems. So that's the heart part, heart part. And then there's that gut part. And at that point, we have entered a new world, you know, and we see that we are riding a magic carpet of the updraft of emergence, and that the world is enchanted, and that our life is enchanted. And everybody we meet's life is enchanted and we are the hero of our story and we're supposed to meet these people and we're supposed to learn something. And, and we see that every fight and every catastrophe breeds some new realization of goodness, truth, and beauty. And it's terrifying and it's awesome and it's what the F and it's hallelujah and it's all of that because we see that evolution while we, we see that it does lead to ever unfolding stages of goodness, truth, and beauty, it is in its process, not pretty. So beautiful, but not pretty. So that's that realization of the gut. And my take on Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg, damn it. My take on Pete Buttigieg, I'm just going to call him Mayor Pete, is I, like everybody else is. Uh, but my take on him is that he's got the head part down. Integral cognition is, you know, where he lives. And I do think he has that heart part on too. I think he has some pieces, the little pieces he needs to be working on, and I'll point those out. Uh, but in terms of the gut, I don't know. Uh, I would say that if he does have that, he would have to hide it <laughs> in order to stay a mainstream and not scare the children or get relegated to the new age section. So um, who knows there, but it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's great to, to, to just see those first two. And, and I think he's got those online. So I'll let him describe himself here. And this is from Fox News Sunday. This is his entry into the lion's den. Here we go, hang on. I don't know. I think everybody wants to fit you on an ideological spectrum, which I think has never been less relevant. Uh, I think more and more people just want to know what your ideas are and, and whether they make any sense. All right. So that's how he describes himself to, to Chris Wallace. And he goes on to say that I think we're in a tectonic shift in America, such that even now we may be underreacting to how deep this present moment is. I mean, you basically have a 30 to 40 year long Reagan consensus that has held sway over this country. And that's done. I think it's a moment that's really crying out for big ideas and for us to pay attention to just really profound things happening. There's something happening right now that calls for something completely different than what we've been seeing. Generationally different, regionally different, somebody with a different life story and a different background. And to the surprise of many, including myself, this moment could be the only moment over the last hundred years or the next hundred years when it's appropriate for somebody like me to be in this conversation. But I'll tell you, with that moment shaping up, I'm not going to miss that moment. 
So what do you think of that? Well, I like it. And I think a lot of people liked it. I, I, I want to share some of the comments that I found uh, on the Fox News site under this video. And it's, they're pretty amazing. Look at these comments. I'm a Republican, but almost everything he said, I feel the same way. I like him. From another guy uh, who refers to himself as the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He says, I'm a conservative, but this guy seems really likable and interested in understanding other points of view. I hope he wins the nomination. Third comment, Chris Wallace didn't ask him once about his sexuality. That's awesome. Followed by seven clapping hands icons. Next, the more interviews I watch with Mayor Buttigieg, the more I get excited about supporting his campaign. And then somebody has the same reaction I have saying, WTF is happening here. There's no way I'm on Fox comments. I think one of the things that Mayor Pete has in his favor, it's an old adage, and that is, the more conservatively you dress, the more outrageous the things you can say. And I think he's got that going for him. He comes with this sort of you know, white bread, middle America kind of package. He's been a veteran, you know, he's got all the credentials and he wears his shirt sleeves and he's rolling them up. That's his trademark, his shirt sleeves. And at the same time, he is unabashedly progressive. And he is really interesting, interested in bringing uh, ideas that were previously not allowed to be brought to the table. Of course, Bernie changed that in terms of democratic socialism and so forth. And there's been a big move in that direction, and he's definitely riding it. And, and, and of course, it's so appropriate for him being the first millennial presidential candidate. And I think he's now 37. So, uh, as he writes, if the debate is just between a center-left and a center-center-left, then we're not really exploring all of the different possibilities. Most of the boldness in American politics in my lifetime has come only from the right, and it's refreshing to see that change. And then he said something that, you know, as an integralist, it just really got my juices flowing. He said, we need to actually see the furthest boundaries of our idea space. And I love that. And that, and that is, um, I think, a marker of integral consciousness in and of itself. And that is that, you know, being multi-perspectival at integral, we want to ungrip, uh, uncontract from our perspectives that we've had and nurtured for all our lives and question them and be open to other ones and put ourselves behind the eyes of other people. And as we do that, our identity grows from that one perspective contraction to an identity that is actually identifying with a bigger space within which many perspectives are available. And these are perspectives that we've seen and appreciate and, you know, get and we can bring to the party. And 
that is beautifully said in that line that he that I'll repeat. He said, we need to actually see the furthest boundaries of our idea space. We want to move the yard line. So we're including more stuff. And I will play a couple of video, quick videos here where he unpacks that. The first is from The View. And I'm forgetting Anna, I'm forgetting who's questioning him. Anna, she's a conservative. Uh, Anna Navarro. Anna Navarro has challenged him on this idea of democratic socialism. And she says, you know, I'm a, a Cuban. There's, I, I've, I've seen socialism up close. I have friends from Venezuela. You know, it, it, there's a lot of people, particularly in that exile community, that they don't want to hear about socialism. So what do you think? And here's what he says. One of the reasons why this term has lost its meaning. Um, I believe that uh, capitalism is this incredibly powerful force that can do a lot of good. But I guess in the same way people talk about democratic socialism, I want to talk about democratic capitalism. So it's not irredeemable? Oh, I love that. These ladies loved him. Everybody has. You know, when he was on Morning Joe, uh, the the next day, Joe and Mika were just all a Twitter about how their friends had called them and everybody was so excited about this Mayor Pete. Uh, in fact, let me just play a quick thing from Mika. Well, first of all, let me play a piece from Morning Joe where he unpacks what he's talking about in terms of uh, democratic capitalism. Uh, there's a generation of people who grew up at a time when you had communism and socialism on one side, you had democracy and capitalism on the other. I think today we're negotiating the tensions between democracy and capitalism. I'm committed to democracy. And the biggest thing we have to ask ourselves is, if there is a tension between them, do you care about capitalism more than about democracy? Or do you care about democracy more than you care about capitalism? Yeah. So, you know, he's further differentiating from the, you know, these big blocks of ideologies. As I said, he's not afraid to be pretty radical. He has defended the 70% tax rate. He hasn't committed to it, but he, you know, it's not out of uh, the realm of the possible. He's uh, in favor of the Green New Deal, at least in principle. He says he'd do some things differently. He's a politician, but he's in that ballpark very much into... Uh, the millennial view of climate change about we're the people who are going to have to fix this. We're the people who are going to be most affected by this and the younger generations and God bless them. Uh, he's for Medicare, as he puts it, Medicare for all who want it. And basically for having a public option on the table for people. And I don't quite understand it, <laughs> but it sounds like Obamacare to me. But he makes the case that, hey, Obamacare was a conservative position. It was, it was, uh, they came up with it in a conservative think tank. And Mitt Romney ran with it as a Republican governor of Massachusetts. He's for uh, changing the Supreme Court. He's talked quite, I think, quite eloquently about how the court can't be a new apocalyptic ideological crisis every time somebody is appointed and that it's undermining the credibility of the court. And he suggests that we have five new justices that would be voted on only through the unanimous consent of the sitting justices who were, were appointed. And there's other ways he's, uh, there's other ideas there, but it's radical.
And, uh, and I think it's worth a conversation. That's what he's saying. So, you know, he does get into policy and his book is quite eloquent on these policies. His, his, the, the, the book is quite eloquent in general. Uh, I forget who wrote the comment in The Guardian that it's the best political biography since Barack Obama's, but I haven't read them all, that's for sure. But uh, it's in that category. It has a literary quality to it. This guy is a deep thinker and a beautiful writer. And I've been reading political biographies because I want to maybe share, you know, about these other candidates and, and, and as I learn about them. And so I read his bio, Shortest Way Home. I read Kirsten Gillibrand's biography, forgetting the name of it. And um, I'm halfway through Cory Booker's, just started Elizabeth Warren's. And, you know, they all do what these political biographies should do. And that is introduce us to the person writing it. It's their, you know, it's their statement. And that's why I like comparing them. Because, you know, if you're just about picking up YouTubes and hearing what the media has to say and so forth, it's all filtered. And this is their one time to make their one statement about who they are. And they have all done it. Even Donald Trump did Make America Great Again. It's a book. Not sure he's read it. But he did put it out. And, um, and what I'm finding is that, you know, I'm liking these people. I'm, I'm, I'm learning to like them all. I appreciate what they're doing. And I am less cynical about politicians having read them. I don't know if that's a good thing, but, but especially with uh, Mayor Pete's. So in addition to policies, he, it, it, he, he says this himself. He says, you know, we overdo it with leading on policy because we're inevitably going to get into a fight with people who have different policies. And what he really wants to lead with is values. And I like that. He, he, he transmits a vibe more than he does anything. A vibe that in a way is the best of what we want to integrate from the green progressive politics. And that is a, a, a sort of a communitarian vision and a realization of the matrix that we're all living with where we're connected to each other. And that's something that is, I think, right on schedule, particularly with younger people. And it's an antidote to the alienation and anxiety and drift that are the downsides of modernity, where we got all these great, great gifts of individual freedom and the ability to go out and make our way and all of that sort of thing. But we do want to reintegrate community. And we want to get deeper into seeing each other as people instead of just the other. He talks a lot about that. And, you know, that's just, you know, that's, that's an integral engine is to see other people uh, as I, I, instead of I, it's, you know, see them in first person instead of third person. And he's all about that. And I will play another video where he talks about this. I mean, we've allowed our conservative friends to get a monopoly on the idea of freedom. Now they care about freedom. 
But they care about a very specific kind of freedom. Freedom from. Freedom from regulation. As though government were the only thing that could make us unfree. All right. But that's not true, is it? We know that your neighbor can make you unfree. Your cable company can make you unfree. If they're telling you who you ought to marry, your county clerk can make you unfree. And then here, I'm going to play a quick video where he talks about this idea of values versus policies. And values, of course, are, you know, another word for stage of development, because each of these, each of the stages of development that are online in our current culture, the traditionalists, modernists, and postmodern progressives, have different sets of values. The world makes sense to them in accordance to those values. The values are really key to the worldview. And he's, you know, integral enough that he really wants to uh, knit those together and see what's best about each of them, because that is the way forward. Integral is about integrating the best of the previous stages into a new integration, where we have, again, come from a more spacious mind that has all of these perspectives online and available to us. And there's a natural wisdom that is online with that. You realize that space has a certain intelligence and love, and it brings forth the perspective that is appropriate uh, for any situation in a way that's different than us just coming up with it. But he gets that. And, um, and here is how he puts it. When and if this period ends, there's a Conciliation stage that's going to have to happen that involves, on one hand, not budging one inch from our values, and on the other hand, finding some way to relate to people without notifying them that we think they're complicit in a crime. And it's going to be a real challenge for this country. But I think the way we get there is by talking about the things we believe and talking about our values, even when they're different. Because I think people who talk in terms of values, and this gets back to why I think we lead with values more than policies, will respect each other even when those values differ. In talking about Trump, he um, again separates Trump from Trump's supporters, which I strive to do as well. And as he puts it, he says, look, I think a lot of folks are waiting for some piece of evidence to come along that finally proves once and for all that he's not a good guy. And what they forget is that there are a lot of people where I live and maybe a lot of people around here, too, who, knowing that he's not a good guy, walked into the voting booth and voted to burn the house down because of some very deep issues that motivated them to send a message. Some of which I think we should give no quarter to, like racism, but others of which deserve to be taken seriously. The sense of displacement and the belief that Democratic and Republican presidencies have let them down. And the failure of this enormous American prosperity to reach so many people in so many communities. If we're not paying attention to that, I fear somebody like this president will come along in a different guise and we'll be right here having these debates again. So I think he's in the right side of the street with all of this. But 
I got to say, I found a little bit of a chink in the armor that I'll, I'll share here now. Hang on just a second. And this is back on The View, and he's with uh, Joyce Behar, who is asking him a question about religion. And he is religious, and he is a, what he, he would consider himself, he's Episcopalian. He was married to his husband in the Episcopalian church. And he makes a case for the religious left, the religious left that as he says, really follow, more follows the teachings of Jesus, a little more New Testament, if you will, and is concerned about the poor and the people and the least of these, as Jesus said, what you do to the least of these, you do for me. And he points that out. So anyway, she is asking him, why have religious people gone for Trump? What are they seeing in him? And here's his answer. What is it that they are hooking onto with Trump, do you think, on that side? Oh, that's part of the mystery, yeah, right? I think it? at the I end mean, of the day, it's power, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you try power to figure out how the vice president, for example, who has maybe a different understanding of Christianity than I do, one that's largely about sexuality. Um, but that's even stranger, because how did he then attach himself uh, to someone who's getting caught writing hush money checks to, to porn stars? And that's it's so- called hypocrisy. Right. And, and the Bible is full of it talks about this. It talks about hypocrites. It talks about Pharisees. It talks, frankly, political officials and priests don't come off that well in the new text of the New Testament. All right. So I think that is a very powerful argument politically. I think he's going to speak to a lot of people on the left with that. But the, the, the final explanation is that they're hypocrites after power. And that is, you know, that's not integral enough for me. Here's what he could have said. He could have said something along the lines of, Trump may believe in God, and, and, and I'll say just parenthetically that he came out a couple of days ago in an article that I saw where he said he can't imagine that a guy like Trump really believes in God. And I would, I would, I don't either, actually. I don't think Trump believes in God if I had to guess, but it's plausible that he does in the way that red warrior consciousness does, which is where Trump lives most of the times, where his self-sense is. He's not even traditional. He's pre-traditional. He's down in the warrior stage. And people at that stage believe in God, but it's a particular kind of God. It's a superhero God. It's a, a God with superpower. He's the guy in the sky who is in charge of everything and has chosen me and my people to be his people. And uh, Donald Trump may think that he has been chosen like these great Old Testament kings, none of whom were good people. They were not nice people. Uh, And they lead the people forward. So it's a little more Old Testament. So that's fine, uh, because the Old Testament's still part of the Bible. And if you add a little bit of forgiveness from the New Testament, which these people do, and they don't know how Donald Trump, you know, people, the Lord works in mysterious ways, and God may have worked on Donald Trump's heart, and he's good now, and we can forgive him his past transgressions. Uh, In terms of the bullying and the continued vulgarity, you know, he's a character. You know, he's on our side, and at any rate, he is defending the traditional worldview. He is defending the Word of God. And that value set of traditionalism that feels under siege, and it is. 
against the excesses of modern globalism and of postmodern or progressive multiculturalism. And both of those things, so the, the, the modernism has globalization, postmodernism has multiculturalism. Both of those are very threatening to the uh, traditionalists and Trump's on their side. So, um, you know, from their perspective, it's not hypocrisy. It's they're making the world a better place for their children and grandchildren, just like the left is. And I wish he had said that, but of course that would have been political suicide. And there's a big place in the political spectrum for people who really see it the way Pete does, that, you know, going in with the hypocrisy and power and all of that. And there's truth in that, of course. Um, I, I think of one of the faux pas that Obama famously made in his election where he talked about, he was back in my home country, Western Pennsylvania, and he was talking about how these people there who have been left behind and these rusting cities. And he was saying that when people have lost you know, the, what they had, that they cling to their God and guns. And that was an infamous statement of, of, of Obama's that told conservatives everything they needed to know about him. And, and, and I would say Pete's in the same category as here, that if these people weren't afraid, in Obama's case, or if they weren't in, in the thrall of a hypocrite, in the case of Pete, then they would see the world the way we do. And that is, um, that's not multi-perspectival enough, but whatever. Uh, I think that the other, the other critique that traditionalists will have about Pete, and they haven't, it hasn't really formed yet. The left, there's been a blowback from the left towards Pete more than there has from the right that I've seen. As, as I said, in the comment section of Fox News, they're loving him. But I think in the final analysis, they may find that he is a little too nice, a little too thoughtful, that he's an introvert. You know, there's that sort of flavor of Obama there that, uh, you know, I would always wonder why are people so, so hate Obama? You know, I would talk to some of my friends and, uh, and relatives back home and they had a visceral hatred for him, much the same as I had for Dick Cheney. And why was that? He's such an obviously nice guy. He's so smart. He's so good. And, uh, and I realized that at the base of it, I, I talked to my one friend who was very open, has a lot of self-awareness. And she was, she was afraid with Obama in charge. He wasn't big daddy enough. He was too thoughtful. She didn't think she, you know, the world's a dangerous place, that there's a titanic battle between good and evil, between God and the devil. And we need our own son of a bitch. You know, as my Aunt Marilyn says, we need, we need a president with some balls, Jeff. And uh, that was her defense of Trump. And I get it. You know, at that stage, particularly in that worldview, uh, there's, there's more fear. That's a, more fear-oriented. And that's just where people live. And they get to live there. And they get to be here. And we have to deal with them. So, anyway. I did want to play the part where he talked about coming out and being gay, because he did not come out. He, as he said, he didn't come out to himself till he was in his 30s. And he didn't come out in terms of publicly being gay until after his deployment in uh, Afghanistan. And as I said, that was during his second campaign for mayor. And um, I want to play that. 
I'm not sure I would have ever got around to it if it weren't the deployment. The deployment put me over the top, um, largely just because I think I, I started realizing that you only get one life. And not just in the sense that, that you got to make the most of it, but also in the sense that you only get to be one person. Um, and when you're not out, you learn to be more than one person. Um, but when you die, you're only one person. And I remember thinking I could die. And I'm in my thirties. I'm the mayor of a city. I've traveled the world. I have no clue what it is like to be in love. And I just thought that was a confusing and humiliating place to be. And I had to end it. In the book, he, it's, it's, he's just beautiful about his relationship with his husband, Chaston, and how he has been accepted into Chaston's family and what it has brought to his life. And he would mention his husband and he would mention being gay two or three times, but we were a couple hundred pages in before he really got to it. But what he did, he did a whole section on the book uh, on coming out. And it was, it was very, very beautiful. And I actually think these days that being gay, especially in the way that he's being gay, in, in a conservative way. I mean, this is, we talk about the integration of, of things that had been polarized and it, they move into a new integration, and that's what makes things move forward. And the cultural awareness around homosexuality is just a perfect example, because we had something that was, you know, unspeakable, and is unspeakable and punishable in the traditional stage of development. At modernity, we get to don't ask, don't tell, and it. Post-modernity, you know, we start getting really interested and, you know, the victim becomes somebody that we want to bring back online and reify and, and that sort of thing. His way of bringing it forward is the integrated way. And you can see that what really ultimately worked for gay people was not gay pride parades, although they worked in their own way in terms of just challenging and make, making people look. But what won people's hearts over was a conservative... Uh, message, which is that we want to fight in the military and defend our country. Uh, and we want to be married. We want to live the same life you do. And these are conservative principles. These are big in traditionalism, defending the country and marriage. And that's an integration that won the, won the day. And now being gay is something that I think is positive and interesting as long as it's not threatening. He's got that going for him. All right. Now, I did mention that there is and there will be an inevitable blowback to Pete. And some of that has already arisen. There was an article that was published less than a week ago uh, by Nathan J. Robinson in Current Affairs that got passed around a lot. And it's a, it's a critique of Mayor Pete from the left. And um, that's a lot of what matters here as we move into the primary season where the Democrats are fighting each other. And here's the lefty argument against Pete. It's an article called All About Pete. The subhead, only accept politicians who have proved they actually care about people other than themselves. And I love this, actually. This is, this is some of the positive uh, emergent of Green. And, and, and this is a Green manifesto here. 
He says, let me be upfront about my bias. And that's one of the things that Green is really healthy about is they realize that everybody's coming from a perspective. Everybody's coming from a value set. And there is no, you know, objective value set that we all need to be part of. We're just coming with our own. And so that's, that's cool. And, and so he lays it out. And here's what he says. Here's my bias. I don't trust former McKinsey consultants. I don't trust military intelligence officers. And I don't trust the type of people likely to appear on 40 under 40 lists, the valedictorian to Harvard to Rhodes Scholarship types who populate the American elite. I don't trust people who get flattering reams of newspaper profiles and are pitched as the next big thing that you must pay attention to. And I don't trust wonderkins who become successful too early. Why? Because I am somewhat cynical about the United States meritocracy. Few people amass these kinds of resumes if they are the type to openly challenge authority. Noam Chomsky, which is one of his heroes, says that the factors predicting success in our meritocracy are, quote, a combination of greed, cynicism, obsequiousness, and subordination, lack of curiosity and independence of mind and self-serving disregard for others. So, when journalists see Harvard and think impressive, I see it and think, uh-oh. And then he goes through and, you know, skewers Pete up one side and down the other, even though the policies are very lefty. But he doesn't think his heart's in the right place because one of the things that Green takes too much to heart is that it's about identity and, 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 and not the individual and that you can't get away from who you are in terms of what you think and that who he is, is just not what we need right now. He says, this is Nathan J. Robinson. He writes at the end, he says, why have I been so relentlessly negative? Because I see what this is. And I see how these things go. And we can't afford to make this mistake again. No more bright young people with their beautiful families and flawless characters and elite educations and vacuous messages of uplift and togetherness. Give me fucked up people with convictions and gusto. Give me real human beings, not CV padding corporate zombies. So... It doesn't matter what Pete says. He says you're, he's going to say lots of great things that are going to you're going to really like to hear, but don't fall for it because he can't escape who he is. And that, you know, there's a piece of truth about that. What what he wrote in this article, you could see it. It's called All About Pete. Uh, it's a perfect green critique of Orange, you know, that corporate zombie thing, and it's not all wrong. You know, if you look at Pete's life, and I'm sort of alluded to it at the top of the show here, you know, the Harvard, the corp, the pianist, the concert level, he's the Rhodes Scholar. And he also goes to make sure he points out that he wasn't just a Rhodes Scholar. He was at the top of the Rhodes Scholars when he was a Rhodes Scholar. And then he keeps his Christianity like Obama, you know, you got to have that. He goes to the military 
And he, he was in real danger. He was in real combat. He was driving the trucks around. Uh, he did a real thing there. You know, he comes out as gay. It's, you know, he, he, he does it all. And it looks like it could just be this big plan of uh, another sociopath who just, just wants power. Um, but I don't think it is. I, I actually trust his sincerity. And I just, I, you know, Nathan J. Robinson does it. I do. And we'll see who's right because we don't know Pete very well. But um, let's see here. I do. Oh, yes. And I want to, I, maybe I'll just finish with this. Yeah, the, this, is, um, this is from Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe. And it's a short little thing that I think is kind of funny. By the way, he's got a very calming presence. Yeah, I mean, you're like the Mr. Rogers of the Democratic field. So he's the Mr. Rogers of the Democratic field. And, uh, you know, I think some truth to that, too. I would encourage you to take a look at his book, Shortest Way Home. It's a really beautiful book. It really is. And I think he's the real thing. At any rate, he is coming at this with a, uh, you know, a really solid integral uh, center of gravity. And that will be interesting to see. That is, you know, it's not unlike Obama. I think he's a different character than Obama. My friend uh, Namali and I were debating his eniotype. You know, where is he on the eniogram? And there's a certain consensus among integralists that understand the enneagram that Obama was a nine with a one wing or a one with a nine wing, but he was spacious and he had a lot of capacity and he had the sense of justice and all of that stuff that sort of is that characteristic. And I'm not so sure that Pete's in that, uh, that realm. I think he, uh, if I had to say, I'd say he's a six. And that he is a six with, he's, he says he's intro, quite introverted. And he may be a six with a five wing. Uh, but he has that six loyalty, that duty thing, even a little bit of a counterphobic thing, where he's always stepping into the thing that scares him. And, um, but we love our sixes. A healthy six is a real mensch. He's the person you want to uh, be on your team. And, and leading your team often. So we'll see how it goes. We just, as I said, we just met this guy. So uh, all hail Mayor Pete, and uh, we will see how it goes. Thanks folks for checking in on the Daily Evolver. It's my great pleasure to do this. You can find all of my stuff at my website, dailyevolver.com. Okay, thanks again, folks. See you next time. <laughs>